preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and uh, turn... Back to First uh, Peter. We're back in First Peter uh, this week, and it's a, a joy to open up uh, God's word, word with you uh, uh, once again. Uh, but uh, always a blessing to know that this uh, pulpit is uh, well covered, even in my absence. So uh, thankful for the Lord granting us a, a deep bench uh, here at, uh, at BBC. Uh, but today we uh, turn our attention back to First Peter chapter three, and uh, really to the final verses in a section that Peter started clear back in chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, Peter began to address the God-given responsibilities uh, that we have to bear witness to him while suffering, while suffering through difficult and trying circumstances, uh, whether that's in relationship to the human institute of, of government, uh, which can be ignorant and foolish, or to masters uh, who can be harsh and unreasonable, Uh, to husbands who can be disobedient to the word, or to wives who can be fearful and unsubmissive. Uh, But now in chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter says, I want to make sure you know I'm talking to everybody. He says, uh, finally, all of you, or uh, to sum up, all of you. Now, there's nobody uh, left out of uh, Peter's exhortation here. Uh, We're all invited to this party. Uh, So Peter wants to make it clear uh, that we know that he's talking to all of us. And in rapid succession, uh, Peter lays down these commands one after another after another. It's, it's this rapid fire like a, like a machine gun. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. It's just this blow after blow after blow, exhortation after exhortation. You know, he hardly comes up for error until he gets to verse 9, where he finally gives us the reason or the purpose behind all of these exhortations. And what's that? Look at the middle of chapter 3 and in verse 9. He says, for, so here's his, his reasoning, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called for this. Or for, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, which lets us know that there's a goal beyond Peter's exhortation. This is not just simply a, a list of, to increase the misery that we experience in life. This is all for our joy and for our blessing. It's not like Peter saying, you know, I, I hear that you're, you're having a hard time in an unbelieving society, a thankless job, a difficult marriage, but you know what? That's what you get. You, you, were, you were made to suffer. Misery is your lot in life, and I'm, I'm just writing to let you know to, to get over it, you know, deal with it. You know, and by the way, while you're dealing with it, you need to, to have a good attitude about it too. You know, you need to, to grin and, and bear it. And uh, here's a list to work on. You know, be harmonious, brotherly, humble, kind-hearted. You know, take the abuse, take the evil, take the insults, 
and don't expect any relief, anything different. Don't expect anything in return because, you know, that's, that's just life. You know, that's, that's life. But the purpose in Peter's exhortation is not to add misery to injury, but to add blessing. And he actually lets us know that, that this is your calling in life, to give a blessing that you might receive or inherit a blessing. This is what you've been called for. You were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is your calling, which really leads us to an important question that I'd like to ask today is, is have you missed your calling in life? Have you missed your calling? Have you ever been asked that question before? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You know, have I missed my calling in life? Have I missed, missed it? You know, most often when we hear that, that question being asked is uh, when people are questioning themselves in relationship to non-moral decisions. You know, should I go to school? You know, is that part of my, my calling in life? If I do go to school, where do I go to school? And what career path should I take? And when I graduate, which job should I choose? Should I take a promotion? Should I move? Should I buy a house? Should I get married? And the list goes on and on because, after all, I don't want to miss my calling in life. You know, I don't want to miss out on what God might have for me. But is this how we're to understand the calling or the will of God? In his uh, book, Just Do Something, Kevin DeYoung says, in the usual understanding of God's will, God knows what we should do. He has a perfect plan for our lives, and he'll hold us accountable if we don't follow his will, but he won't show us what that will is. The traditional approach to God's will makes God into a tricky little deity who plays hide-and-seek with us. He not only hides his will from us, but he then expects us to find it. And we obsess over God's will of direction, eventually getting frustrated with God for not showing us what he wants. And we end up disappointed with ourselves or angry at God because we can't seem to figure out how to find God's will for our lives. We just can't find it. And John MacArthur wrote a similar book, and his book was titled Found God's Will, where he argued that God's will is not lost, but there are plenty of people who are searching for God's will as if it's some riddle that we have to figure out. But God hasn't given us enough information to figure out this this riddle. You know, he's just given us, you know, just enough to, to get a clue that we could keep on going and, you know, try to find another clue. And often people who think about God's will in, in this way, they're fearful that, you know, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I, I took a wrong turn back there somewhere. You know, have I missed God's calling for my life? You know, maybe I, I should have been a dentist, but I'm a landscaper. I just missed it. You know, or, or maybe I, I missed my soulmate. And I should have said no when I said yes, or said yes when I should have said no. Or maybe I should have lived in Florida, but I'm stuck here in Maryland. Or maybe I should have been a missionary somewhere. You know, we, we all have sometimes these questions that might come up in our mind. And, you know, the, the way that people think through this is, if only I followed the signs. If only I followed the signs. If only I, I interpreted the signs correctly. You know, just if the breadcrumbs were just a little bit bigger, I, I would have followed the path that God was trying to lay out. You know, it's just this mysterious, confusing, you know, idea. But is this what we've come to expect from God? Uh, A God who makes his existence and attributes clear? Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 lets us know that God has made himself clear in what's been created, what's been seen. A God who makes himself clear in salvation and sanctification. He's clear in his word. His word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. But then we're left to figure out some kind of mysterious 
hidden will of God that he's really not telling us, but we've got to figure it out, and he's going to hold us accountable for us. And you might have picked up from his title, Just Do Something, that Kevin DeYoung doesn't agree with that kind of idea. God's will is not hard to figure out. John MacArthur's title, Found God's Will, you know, lets us know that we're not still in this, this massive search to try to find this hidden secret will of God. And both of the authors come to the same conclusion that we need to spend more time concerning ourselves with the will that God has revealed to us in his word, and that's our primary calling. The unrevealed secret will of God is just that. It's secret. It's unrevealed. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And if we're observing the revealed word of God, we don't have to worry that somehow I'm outside of God's secret will. God knows how to accomplish his sovereign will regardless of where we live, regardless of what house you buy, regardless of what job you took. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is going to accomplish his pleasure, whether you can try to figure out his secret will or not. God is going to do what he's going to do. So it frees us, as Kevin DeYoung says, to just do something. And that's not to say that we don't seek counsel and wisdom and pray and gather facts and examine our motives and our decision-making, but that is to say that uh, God has given us everything that we need to know to make wise decisions because he's given that to us in his word. His revealed word gives us all that we need to know to live in a way that would please and honor him. And if we're following the revealed will of God and we're faced with two good decisions, as MacArthur said, do what you want. <laughs> if, if you know that you're following the revealed will of God and you're faced with two decisions and you've thought through it, you've prayed through it, you've sought counsel about it, you're, you're trying to make that decision, examining your motives, just pick one, right? Just pick one. Just do what you want and trust that God is sovereign even over your desires. That's freedom, right? That's liberating. You can't miss out on your calling when it comes to the sovereign will of God and not even the sins of others can knock you off course. Even the worst of human sins in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, only accomplished what God had already determined before the foundation of the world. Amen. Acts chapter 4 verse 28 says that the gathered sins of the people only accomplish whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So you can't miss the sovereign will of God. Actually, you're in it right now. <laughs> You're right now living the sovereign will of God. You can't miss out on that as far as your calling. But when it comes to the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God, that's where you and I need to give our primary attention to. What has God revealed to me that I need to do? What commands has he given to me to do? What kind of attitude should I have? That's where you need to focus your time. And that's where we're directed to in this text. We're directed to our calling in life, and it's the revealed Word of God. First Peter chapter 3. Uh, look at verse 8 with me together. First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Peter says, To sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead 
but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for the clarity of it, that you give us all that we need for life and godliness in this book. Now, Father, we thank you for the authority that it speaks to us with. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to to understand these things and uh, that we would uh, apply your word to our lives, that we might please you, glorify you, and be a benefit and blessing to others. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. It's been said that uh, you can tell that Peter is a preacher because in verse 8, he says to sum up or finally, and then he goes on for another two chapters. And it's uh, just like preachers who are coming to a close, but they're only halfway through their, their message. But in this case, Peter isn't trying to bring his letter to a close. He's just wrapping up this discussion that he's had prior uh, to this, uh, where he's speaking about believers' responsibility at, in relationship to difficult people and uh, how we're to do what's right in every circumstance that we find ourselves in, uh, whether that's in relationship to the government, to employment, to marriage. And in verse 8, Peter begins to address the kind of unity that we are to have in general with one another. Uh, but these are to be particularly true of us as those who are part of the body of Christ. As uh, one commentator pointed out, uh, that even though we should seek to have this kind of attitude that's described here uh, with everybody, it's only particularly true of those who have a relationship with other believers. Because you can only truly be harmonious and have unity of mind with a believer. And to have this brotherly love, and, and most commentators would point this out as a love between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that's how I would understand the, the primary emphasis of this passage. It's a call for all believers to take on these attitudes, particularly with one another in the body of Jesus Christ. But it's not just exclusively about believers with believers. Because in the, the next verse, in verse 9, we're told how to deal with evil and insults which would have been characteristic of the unbelieving world around them. And although we have our fair share of uh, evil and insults in the body of Christ, and if you, you can't say amen, you can say ouch, like uh, Vodi Bakum often says, uh, we have our own share of evil and insults that take place within the body of Christ. Uh, but what Peter uh, really focuses on here is uh, really the believers, but then speaking about these even unbelievers that would uh, be uh, demonstrating evil and insults towards those who are part of the, the body. So what Peter calls us to here is just, uh, in, in verse 8, is just this uh, kind of general disposition that we're to have, particularly with believers, but even with unbelievers as well. We're called to be a blessing in order that we might inherit a blessing. And then beginning in uh, verse 9 uh, through verse 12, Peter speaks about the call to inherit this blessing, and he supports his conclusion by quoting from Psalm 34. Uh, so our outline for this message is going to be, number one, the call to be a blessing, you know, to be a blessing to one another and the, the way that we respond to one another. And uh, point number two is the call to inherit a blessing. Uh, so number one, have you missed your call to be a blessing? Again, in uh, verses 8 and 9, to sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Have you missed your call to be a blessing? Like I mentioned 
Uh, Peter just jumps out of the gate with this rapid-fire exhortation. In, a, in the Greek language, he doesn't even have a verb here. He doesn't even say, be harmonious or have unity. It's just literally, all of you, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. That's, that's exactly how it reads in the, in the Greek language. It's just this rapid-fire description of what believers are to be, and it's contrasted with what believers are not to be in verse 9, not returning evil, for in, evil or insult for insult. And my question for you is, is, does this describe you? Does the description of a believer in these verses describe you, or have you missed your calling to be a blessing to one another? Like I mentioned before, there are those secret things that belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. And we know that this is our, our calling, and Peter is eager to describe for us how we are to be. Even in trying and difficult circumstances, believers, this is what you are to be. And I can't think of a, a more appropriate word to the church in the midst of a, a toxic and fractured period of time that we live in as what Peter gives us here. And it should come as no surprise that when the, the heat is turned up on the church, when things become uncomfortable in the society, that the need is even greater for the body of Christ to get it together. Back in the book of uh, Philippians, when the, the church began to face some hostility and opponents of the gospel, the Apostle Paul gave a call for unity. In uh, Philippians chapter 1, in verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents. Think about that again. One mind striving together, one spirit. You know, this call for unity, you need to be one. There's a call for unity within to face the opponents without. But too often the, the church is like the Philistines in 1 Samuel 14 who fought with one another until they destroyed themselves. 1 Samuel 14 verse 20 speaks about this battle that the Philistines had with themselves. They were confused by the Lord and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a very great confusion. And too often the church is like that. We turn the swords against ourselves. And my question is, does that describe our church? Does that describe us? What are we to be? Look at this list. We're to be harmonious. Harmonious. The Greek word homophron. It's uh, from two words. Uh, Hama, uh, which means one, the same. And friend, which uh, refers to the thoughts. It's to have the same thoughts, same thing. Harmonious singularly minded, to be intent on the same purpose. It was actually an important uh, value in the Greek and Roman societies. They saw like-mindedness as a necessary building block for society. And if a nation was going to be able to stick together, there had to be a willingness to conform your goals, needs, expectations to the purposes of the larger community. If you, if you didn't have that, you were on the verge of destruction. And where that doesn't exist, disunity is already sown. And the fracturing of society has already begun. And that's exactly what we're experiencing in our nation, aren't we? We're not one nation under God, indivisible, right? We're struggling to even have an identity as a nation. But that shouldn't be the case in the church. We, we should know who we are, right? We should know who we are. And if there's any place where there should be a willingness to conform your goals, needs, expectations, and purposes to the larger community, it should be in the church. And why is that? Because our goals, needs, and expectations are all defined for us in Scripture. We, we, we have the handbook, people. We, we should know where to go. 
1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And there shouldn't be a, a sinful self-exaltation that seeks to position yourself above other believers. The divisions that occurred in the Corinthian church did not exist because they were hearing different doctrinal teachings from their leaders that they looked up to. The, the people in Corinth were bickering among one another, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. But it wasn't that Paul and Apollos and Peter and Christ were teaching contrary things. They all taught the same thing. It's that the people of Corinth were seeking to elevate themselves above one another. So even though they were hearing the same things, they became disunified. They sought to seek an advantage over one another, you know, try to one-up one another. Do we do that within the church? Do we do that within the church? Using our favorite teachers to seek an advantage over somebody else? The Bible says these things should not be. We're to think the same things, say the same things, have the same judgments, and where we don't, we're to seek unity around the word of God and place one another's needs above our own. We should all be after the same thing. Seek to be harmonious. Number two, we should be sympathetic, which comes uh, directly from the Greek word sympathes, uh, two words, sum meaning with and pathes, which means to suffer. We're to suffer with one another. It's actually a rare biblical word that speaks of sharing the feelings of somebody else, whether it's joyful, sad, it's most related to the concept of suffering. Romans 12, 15 says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. Suffer with them. Have you entered into the sufferings of others? Or have you simply been consumed with your own suffering? Do you, do you enter into the sufferings of other people? If we all shared the sufferings of, of others, we'd have a lot less time to be sorry for ourselves, right? It's actually one of the things I often uh, counsel people with who are suffering to do, to find somebody else that you can serve, that you can pray for, that you can hold up. And don't get swallowed up by your own grief. You need to step outside of yourself, right? And brothers and sisters, there's enough right here in our own congregation to keep us busy, isn't it? There, there, there are people that need to be prayed for. There are people who need to be visited. There are people who need to be cared for right here within our, our congregation. Have you stepped outside of yourself to say, let me look for somebody else that I can care for, that I can pray for, that I can hold up? We have a, a high percentage of people right here in our own congregation who've lost spouses, those who have lost parents even recently, some who have been recently diagnosed with diseases, those who've suffered with chronic diseases for a long time, those who are mourning wayward children, those who don't have children. We have people who are facing the possibility of, of the loss of employment. And when you expand beyond that list, just the list in our own congregation to start thinking about others, the trouble across our nation, across the world, do we care? Do we pray? Do we give? I mentioned in our prayer we have brothers and sisters who are being ill-treated in Afghanistan. They're part of our body, right? Hebrews 13, 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. You're part of the same body. Like, like when, when does a part of your body get hurt and you just say, oh, that's, that's just the toe. Who cares about the toe? Like we're all part of the same body. We're connected, right? We're connected. Do we have a care for one another? Are we brotherly? Do we love one another as, as brothers? Philadelphus, 
And again, this is why the, the primary emphasis here is on the body of Christ. We're to love our brothers and sisters. It's a love of brothers to one another. How many times in the scripture does it refer to believers just as brothers? Brothers, sisters. Once a person is adopted into the family of God, they've been accepted into a new family. We've got a new family now. And it's not to say that the Bible doesn't recognize that we come from a, a physical family or a particular heritage. Even Paul acknowledged his, uh, his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh over in Romans chapter 9. But believers in Jesus Christ are part of the same spiritual family. We've all been born of the same spirit. We all have the same father who's in heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew 12 and 50 that whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. We have a spiritual family. It's often been said that uh, the blood is thicker than water, uh, but Jesus surprised those around him by uh, stating that, uh, that spirit is thicker than blood. <laughs> that the spiritual connection that we have is even a tighter connection. Our, our true soul brothers and soul sisters are those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, those who do the will of God and obey him. Do you have a, a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you look at one another as family? Do you think about one another as family? Do you think about being connected to the people that are around you? Do you isolate yourselves from part of your family? Do you see part of your family walk by and you don't even acknowledge them? That's not being brotherly. That's not being loving. We are part of the same family. We share at the same table. We're going to do that today in communion, right? We share the same spiritual life. Do you look at one another here as that's my brother, that's my sister, and I want to get to know my family in here. I'm not just going to pass by my family. We're, we're brothers and sisters. Amen? We're also called to be kind-hearted. It's a word that speaks of being moved in the inward parts. Both the, the Greeks and Hebrews spoke about the, the feelings as a function of the internal organs. It's where you experience these deep feelings. You know, today we often speak about feelings coming from the heart. Uh, but when Greeks and Hebrews spoke about the feelings, they spoke about your feelings coming from your gut. That's the Greek word splanknon, which refers to the intestines, the guts. Sometimes we describe a, an intense experience, sometimes even in English, you know, an intense experience, we say it's gut-wrenching, right? Like I can feel it in my gut. Or sometimes when people get, get nervous, they say, I feel like butterflies are in my stomach, right? Or when people come across a, a horrific accident, they said, my stomach turned. Like it was just enough to make my stomach turn. And there's sometimes when you just feel so, so sorry for somebody that it's just like, just on the inside is just killing you. It's like a pain on the inside because of how much you feel for a person. That's how Jesus felt over in uh, John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 9. When he saw the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. That word for compassion is, is gut-wrenching. He felt it in his gut. His stomach turned. So compassionate that it hurt. And this is what Peter's talking about. Do we, have, do we have mercy? When we see people suffer in here, does it affect us? Or do we just walk past? I'll, I'll pray for you, brother, and just, just move on. Or does it, does, it, does it turn your stomach? And sometimes people can even be hurting themselves, right? In sin, sinning against themselves, sinning against others. Do you have compassion even when people are caught up in a transgression? Do you have compassion? Like, like, Lord, please, no. And reach out to them in love. And the final adjective here is humble in spirit. This is a word that means to be brought low. 
to be abased, to be leveled. The Greek culture used it in a derogatory sense. It was uh, shameful to be looked at as weak and lowly. You know, I'm not going to be underneath anybody's feet. I'm not going to bring myself low. And John MacArthur noted that it took Christianity to elevate humility to a virtue. Jesus says, no, this is good. This is right. Humble yourselves. And it's exactly what the Lord modeled for us, right? Because he himself humbled himself. He humbled himself, emptied himself, gave up of himself, never losing any of the rights or privileges that he had as God, but he humbled himself even to the point of the cross, that he gave up his life. That's humility, and that's the example of of Jesus Christ. And Christ asks us to follow in his footsteps. Are, Are you willing to be made low for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ? that I'm willing to, to spend of myself to make sure that I'm serving the others who are here in the body of Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to, to, to live in this kind of way, to, to live with one another. But what should it not look like? That's found in verse, verse 9. It doesn't look like returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You know, verse 8 primarily identifies our relationship with believers, like I mentioned, and Verse 9 seems to turn the corner and even talk about unbelievers, but again, that can be experienced within the body of Christ as well. Evil for evil, insult for insult, the bickering that can happen between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And how are we to respond when somebody insults us? We're not to respond in kind. We're not to respond in kind. We're not to be known for how quick we can have a comeback. That's not how we're to be known as believers which is actually one of the dangers that we have in this you know, social media-saturated culture that we live in because it's so easy to stand behind a, or sit behind a computer screen and just kind of fire off whatever you want to say about somebody else knowing that you'll never have to talk to them. But people do it all the time. They'll just sit back and all kinds of sarcastic comments, cutting comments, cut people down. This is the kind of world that we live in. Somebody was telling me that... Um, uh, that uh, there's different uh, tech companies that are looking into to making more of our life virtual, that we can do virtual shopping and you know, put on some glasses and go shopping and interact with other people. And uh, there might be some benefits to that, but I think it's also going to be disastrous because if social media tells us anything, it's that people just kind of lose all self-restraint when it comes to interacting with one another as if you don't exist. <laughs> Like it's just some kind of video game that they're playing and they can say whatever they want without consequence. People are hurting people. Insult for insult, evil for evil. That's the kind of age that we live in. But the Bible tells us that instead of returning evil for evil, insult for insult, return a blessing. You return a blessing. The the word for returning or repaying is a common word for, for paying back a debt, fulfilling a vow, paying a tax, giving back something that was borrowed, giving an account on the day of judgment. And it's used this way over in 1 Peter 4 and verse 5 where it speaks about us giving an account to him who's ready to judge. So basically it's a word that's used for giving back what was promised or owed. What's promised or owed? When somebody does evil to you, what what do you owe them back? What we think in our mind is that I owe them back an insult. They gave me an insult, I owe them an insult. That's how we think. But the scripture says if somebody gives you an insult, you owe them a blessing. That's what you return. You owe them a blessing. It's the very opposite of what you've received. The word blessing is eulageo, where we get our English word eulogy, to speak well of. Somebody cuts you down, it's like, let me think of something kind that I can say. (laughs) 
How, how can I be a blessing here and allow the Lord to take vengeance? I don't need to take vengeance. Like, let the Lord take care of that. What, what can I do to, to, to be kind in this situation, to speak words that are acceptable? And that's the kind of example that we have from Jesus Christ himself. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 21. This, I'll admit right now, this is hard. <laughs> this is difficult, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Here we go, the calling again. What have I been called for? What have I been called to do? For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. So he was reviled, he was insulted, but he did not come back. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus, in the midst of insult and injury and crucifixion, spoke words of forgiveness. That's what he did. He returned a blessing. He returned a blessing to those who committed evil against him. He returned a blessing. And if it wasn't for that, not a one of us would be saved, right? He returned a blessing for our evil. Praise God. Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So when we respond in a blessing, we're following the example of Jesus Christ. We're called to do this. We're called to this purpose. And there's some debate over what Peter is saying when he says we're called to this. You know, are we called to return the blessing for evil, or are we called to inherit the blessing? You know, which one is it? And the grammar could go either way, but it doesn't matter because it's all connected anyway. Because you return blessing for evil in order that you may inherit the blessing. It's all connected. Or if you inherit the blessing, it's because you've returned blessing for evil. It's all connected. You can't really separate them. So if we're a blessing, it's so that we inherit a blessing. That's the result of it. And this is what we've been called to. Here's point number two. You've been called to inherit a blessing. Called to inherit a blessing. Look again at uh, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. It says, For you were called for the very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Like I said, if you came here this Sunday wondering, what's my calling in life? This is it right here. You've been called to be a blessing in order that you might inherit a blessing. That's your calling. And the blessing that we've been called to inherit is specified here. Up until this point in Peter, uh, when he's spoken of an inheritance, it's talking about our future inheritance. You know, the inheritance that we'll have in, in heaven. You know, 1 Peter 1 verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's our future inheritance. 1 Peter 1 verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Again, speaking about this future inheritance that we have connected to our salvation. But at this point, Peter encourages us with some of the temporal blessings that we experience in this life. And that's made clear by the context. And the passage that he quotes from over in uh, Psalm 34, actually, why don't you flip back to Psalm 34 real quick. Psalm 34. Psalm 34 uh, 
is one of the Psalms that gives us a historical marker of when it was written, what's the context uh, that was being spoken of. And uh, if you look at Psalm 34, at the beginning of that Psalm, in uh, most of your Bibles, you'll, you'll find it there. Uh, but this is what it says in the, in the, the superscript it's called, the, the, the words that, that precede verse 1. Look at what it says here. It says, the Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. This is a psalm that was written about this context when David pretended to be mad, pretended to be a madman before this king who's here named Abimelech. It's actually a title for the king Achish, uh, Achish of Gath. And he drove him away. You know, David played the madman and he was driven away. That's the context of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 speaks about that. Uh, just to get to the context of, of that passage, why don't you flip back to 1 Samuel 21. Keep your finger in uh, Psalm 34 and flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21 takes us to a time before David became the king of Israel. David is on the run from Saul, the man on the run. He's running from a man who's actually his father-in-law, if you can imagine that, and the father of his best friend, Jonathan. You know, that's who he's on the run from. My father-in-law and the father of my best friend. It was evident that God had declared that David would be the next man to sit upon the throne. It was also evident that, that Israel was ready to receive David as the king because they reply after the defeat of Goliath, you know, hey, Saul, he's, he's slain his thousands, but David, David is 10,000s. They're ready for David. Even, the, even Jonathan, the son of Saul, says that, that you will be king over Israel. 1 Samuel 23 and verse 17. But Saul's not prepared for that. He's not prepared to give up the throne to his son-in-law. And in order to escape the threat of death, David goes into hiding and he hides someplace that he doesn't think anybody will come looking for him. He goes deep into Philistine territory. That's where he goes. He's in Philistine territory. And not only in Philistine territory, he goes into the city of Gath. That might not mean much to you, but there was a, uh, a big man who was knocked down by a slingshot who came from Gath. Goliath comes from Gath. This is the home of Goliath. He's seeking refuge in the home of Goliath where Goliath was born and raised. Look at 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 10. It says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, who was also known as Abimelech, like I mentioned in Psalm 34. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? So, so here the, the people of Philistine, they know that this is going to be the next, next king. Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? You know, so even the enemies are recognizing him. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So instead of acting like a, a king, he, he acted like the fool. Look at verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them, acted insanely in their hands, scribbled on the doors of the gate, let his saliva run down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you've thought to bring this one to act the madman in my presence? You know, do I need more fools? Shall this one come into my house? You know, that's the background of Psalm 34. That's the background. Flip back over to, to Psalm 34. David 
as he's terrified of his father-in-law, he runs into Philistine territory, acts the madman, saliva's coming down his face, scribbling on the walls, maniac, because he's in fear. Psalm 34 says what he should have done, which was to trust in the Lord. Psalm 34, look at verse 1, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. So magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He exalts God. Verses 4 to 7, he speaks about his experiences of deliverance when he trusted in God rather than trusting in himself. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord. That's not what he was doing uh, back in uh, 1 Samuel 21. He wasn't trusting then. But he talks about these experiences that he had when he did trust the Lord. I sought the Lord. He answered me, delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Uh, you can look this up later, but that's a reference to the second person of the Trinity. Genesis sixteen seven, Judges sixteen eleven, And then in verses 8 to 14, he encourages the godly to place their trust in God alone. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. Young lions are at the top of the food chain. But even they lack, but not the one who seeks the Lord. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? And here is where First Peter quotes from Psalm 34. Who is the man who desires life, loves length of days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. What was David doing when he was in Philistine territory? He was deceiving them. He was pretending like he's a madman. He says, keep away from that. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And then verse 15 to 18, it speaks about those who, he examines those whom the Lord hears. The eyes of the Lord are toward who? The righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then finally ends with the expectation of the righteous, verses 19 to 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You should recognize that as a reference to Christ. Evil shall slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What David does in Psalm 34 is he exalts God, explains his own deliverance, and encourages the godly to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Who are the people that the Lord hears? It's those who fear him, who keep their tongues from evil, their lips from speaking deceit, who depart from evil, who do good, who seek peace and pursue it. They're the ones who are going to love life and see length of days. It's not by taking matters into my own hands and deceiving people that I'm going to extend my life. It's by trusting in the Lord that my life is extended, that I love life and see length of days. That's what I can expect if I'm trusting in him. And that's what Peter is picking up back over in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. He's speaking about the blessings that we can inherit now in this lifetime. There's blessings to come in our internal inheritance, eternal inheritance, but there's blessings that we can experience right now. And that's what Peter is getting at. Verse 13 actually uh, confirms this. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? 
that you can love life, that things can turn out well for you. It doesn't mean it's always going to turn out well for you, because in verse 14, it goes on to say that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So sometimes you suffer and are blessed, but sometimes you do what's right, and and God rewards you by giving you length of days and ability to, to love life. And in general, if you're seeking to do what's right, you can expect good to follow. And that's what's going on in 1 Peter 3. It really kind of follows the example of Ephesians 6. You know, honor your father and mother that, you're, that it may be well with you and that your days may be long, right? So in 1 Peter 3, he's saying that that can be true of you as well. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And what does that mean? It means that the more I give into the temptation to give insult for insult, injury for injury, evil for evil, the more that I give into that is the shorter I'm making my days and the quality of my days and the more I'm robbing from the eternal reward. Getting even is just not worth the price. That's what's going on in First Peter. Jesus speaks about the blessing of the person who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why, why would I cut back my temporal and eternal rewards for the satisfaction of seeing people get what I think they deserve now. It's not worth it. You've been called to more than that. You've been called to be a blessing in order that you might inherit a blessing. But not only that, there's an expectation of being blessed now, but there's also an expectation of being heard now. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is another reminder that our, our prayers can be affected by our disobedience. Just as a, a husband who does not dwell with his wife according to knowledge, that his prayers are hindered, so can the man who retaliates and gives insult for insult, evil for evil, that the God will, will close his ears to your prayer. Describes the, the response of, of God towards those men who turn away from his word. You're not ready to listen to me, and I'm not ready to listen to you either. It's been said that the the face is the part of the the body that most clearly expresses your attitude, and God's response is pictured in in his face. Pictured in his face, his eyes, his ears, his face. What we're talking about is his attention. I know that God hears everything, knows everything, sees everything, but is he paying attention to me? (laughs) Is he paying attention to me? Is he looking towards me? Is he responding towards my prayer? So many times in the, the scripture, there's a request for the face of God. God, show me your face. God, show me your face. Psalm 27, verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me. Oh, God, my salvation, don't turn your face away from me. Psalm 69, verse 17. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Psalm 102, verse 2. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. Give me your ear, God. Psalm 143, verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. It is a terrifying thought to call out to the Lord in the day of distress, and the Lord hides his face. That is terrifying. Terrifying. And it's not true that the Lord can't hear, but the Lord won't hear. But that's not where we have to end, right? 
That's not where we have to end. The Lord's hand is not short, that it can't save. His ear is not dull, that it can't hear. It's our iniquities that make separation between us and our God, right? So what's the answer for that? You repent. <laughs> Lord, Lord, I've been living in this way against my brothers and sisters in Christ. I haven't been living in harmony. I haven't been living in love. I haven't been, been, been feeling and bearing their burdens with them. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've been giving insult for insult, seeking evil for evil. Lord, I'm turning away from this. I don't want this to stand in between me and my God. Lord, don't hide your face. Psalm 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And thank God for his forgiveness. Amen? And believers, this is what you've been called to do. You don't, you don't have to, to search and you know, seek, what, what is the will of the Lord for my life? This, this is it right here. <laughs> this is it right here. And if you're obeying the revealed will of God, you don't have to worry about the sovereign will of God. Uh, the sovereign will of God is going to be accomplished. You, know, you can live for him, live in wisdom, and do what you want, <laughs> right, in that sense. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, between two good decisions, I can do what I want, but I cannot turn away from the revealed word of God, the revealed will of God. This is what God has called us to do, to be a blessing that we might inherit a blessing. Amen? Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word, and uh, we pray that you'd uh, use your word in our lives. Now, Father, that as we prepare for communion even now, that you would help us to examine ourselves. Now, Father, that if we're living in an unreconciled relationship with anybody who's here, uh, Father, that uh, we would confess that before you. Now, Father, that we'd even get up right now and, and seek forgiveness from the person that we're holding a grudge against. Now, Father, that there wouldn't be an insult for insult, injury for injury, evil for evil among us. Father, that we would live in harmony and unity and love towards one another that we would truly treat one another here as family. We're the family of God. Let's act like the family of God. Father, I pray that that would be true of, of BBC. And uh, Father, that uh, we would uh, fulfill uh, the calling that you have on our lives, that we would be that blessing to others, that we might inherit a blessing. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.